Welcome to another episode of Saints Edified. I'm your host, Arturo, and I want to thank you once again for tuning in. If you guys listened to uh, last week's episode, I said I had some news for you, right? Especially for those of you who don't follow Saints Edified on social media, which you should follow. You know, you can go to facebook.com, look for Saints Edified, also on Instagram and on YouTube. I announced something very special, and it's it's something that, that I'm excited about. And that is that a group of friends, including myself, uh, we all have podcasts or, or, or some kind of online ministry. We all decided to work together and create a reformed Christian hip-hop radio station online that runs 24-7. And on this station, you'll hear podcasts, sermons, scripture reading, and so much more. Okay, And, it's, and, and, it, and this will launch on October 31st, which is Reformation Day. Uh, guys, that, that's huge because I remember when I was younger, I wanted to hear something uh, that would edify me, right? And and um, and a lot of times it was very difficult, you know, because if you look for a Christian hip hop station, a lot of times they'll play music that's that's pretty unbiblical, right? Or or, or you hear you hear guys that sound like you, but uh, they're just preaching false doctrine, <laughs> you know, you know. So so this station is meant for those who love theology, who love theology, and love uh, the five solas and and everything about the, the Protestant Reformation. All this will be very very clear in the music that we play in the sermons that we that we play as well and all the content that we produce on this station it's all going to be solid reform material so we're already contacting a lot of artists and and record labels uh, that way we have a good selection of solid biblical reformed christian hip-hop and yeah and and look doing something like this isn't cheap guys it's not it's not cheap i won't lie to you i was trying to find a way to do it for free but there's not really a way to do it for free um, if, if you want to consider quality and, and just having that security that your that your station will be online 24 uh, 7 so it's not cheap and it's not free therefore we need help we need help with uh, with the funds and, and and the expenses so there's a GoFundMe page a link in the description at or you can go to saintsedified.com or even uh, visit the Facebook page Instagram YouTube wherever just contact me and if you want to and if you want to support any kind of way you guys can using that link so that's very that's very much appreciated most importantly we would just love you guys to pray for us in this um, it's something that that we're adding on to our already busy schedules most of us have children and have uh, and are married and have full-time jobs and 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 we have a ministry inside podcasting or or have a, a website or something um, some of us are even co-pastors at churches you know and yet we're putting some some time aside for this radio station because we truly believe it's going to edify believers and it's going to reach out to those um, who who desperately need truth so so please keep that in prayer guys um, and again if you want to support just check out the link below now i want to go ahead and start because it, there's just so much to cover okay so yeah so last week we covered how scripture is authoritative and self-authenticating you know we covered the doctrine of soul scriptura right that was part three now we are in part four and it's titled scripture is sufficient now i know some of you might be wondering I, I thought we already covered how scripture is sufficient and the thing about it is that you know although we, we have touched on it we haven't really focused too much on it right we we, we, we covered it because we talked about second timothy 3 16 and we will we'll, we will cover that verse one more time but section six of the first chapter of the confession just lays it out even more on why scripture is sufficient so i'm gonna go ahead and read that that's going to be from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 6. Okay, so I'm going to read that right now. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life 
is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelations of the spirit or traditions of men nevertheless we acknowledge the inward illumination of the spirit of god to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things are revealed in the word and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. Okay, so there's a lot there and it could be broken down into three chunks, right? So I'm going to try to do that in several points and, uh, and, and I'll continue to, to reference back to this section. So firstly, scripture sufficient. Let's look one more time at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, so scripture is sufficient because it contains all things necessary. Necessary for what? For his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. And by life, it just means how to live. Okay, The Bible tells us how to live, what to believe in, especially when it comes to man's salvation and God's own glory. We, we turn to scripture when we want to know about salvation, right? We turn to scripture about when we, we want to know about what to believe and how to behave, right? We turn to scripture for all these things because it is, it is sufficient to teach us God's will in, these, in this respect. And all that brings God glory. So we know what God wills and what he commands when it comes to the church if we just turn to the scriptures. Another thing is that scripture is sufficient even when it comes to teaching us how to interpret and understand it. Yes, all things necessary contained in scripture is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence deduced from scripture. Okay, so those are two ways to understand scripture or to interpret scripture, okay? There are things that are explicit in scripture, right? We think of the Ten Commandments or we think of things that are very, very clear. But then there are things that are implicit, that are implied. And I'm going to go ahead and, and, and give you guys examples later on. In fact, I'm actually going to show you, I'm, I'm going to share with you guys a clip, a, a clip that I, th I think is very helpful. But it's important to know that, that those are two ways to understand scripture. Because look, there are some things that, there are some people out there who will say, who will challenge you and say, show me where in the Bible it says this word for word, and then they'll believe it. So they'll say things like this, watch, like um, concerning the deity of Christ. They'll say this, show me where in the Bible is where Jesus says, I am God, worship me. Okay. And, and if you go ahead and, and, and fall for it, you know, you're going to say, oh, wow, the Bible, you know, Christ never says that. So therefore he must not be God and he must not deserve worship. Okay. <laughs> so, or, or another thing is polygamy, right? Someone might say, show me where in the Bible where it says polygamy is sinful. Well, you won't find one verse in the Bible that actually says that where polygamy is sinful, you won't, you won't really find it. So then they'll say, therefore, I could have as many wives as I want then. What that's called is, is having a biblicist approach to the text or a biblicist attitude to the text. And what they want to do is demand on their terms what scripture, sh what scripture should say in order for them to believe it. And, and that's just flat out wrong. The term biblicist, it sounds like it's a biblical thing, right? It sounds right. It sounds good, but it's not. Because what it's doing is saying, look, if it's not saying this in the Bible, word for word, I won't believe it. And that's not right. So having a biblical approach is different. It's, it's, it's like saying, instead of saying, show me where in the Bible it says polygamy is sinful, the biblical attitude would be, show me where in the Bible it teaches that polygamy is sinful. 
And that could mean either it, it's explicit or implicit. If, it, if, it's, if it's derived from scripture, I want to know. I want to know. And that, that's, that's more of a biblical approach to the text. So this is so fundamental, guys. Um, and I can't really emphasize this enough because I've seen so many in the past fall and embrace false doctrine because they had a biblicist attitude and approach to scripture. And maybe perhaps at a later time, I will spend more time on why the biblicist approach is not the biblical one. But for now, um, to better understand what, what the confession means right here, I'm going to go ahead and share you guys, share with you guys a short clip from the sermon series where, where this pastor actually goes through the whole entire Westminster Confession of Faith in the form of a sermon and it's just really good, it's convicting and it's edifying. But this is this is Pastor Joel Ellis of Reformation Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Mesa, Arizona. And um, if you guys want the full link, I'll go ahead and include it in the description. Here, enjoy. By the teaching ministry of this church. Well, paragraph six goes on in the confession to say that uh, the whole counsel of God concerning these things is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. And, and these are two points that I think are very important if you want to know how to interpret the Bible. Um, this is not going to be a lesson on how to interpret the Bible, but I want to make a few observations that I hope will at least be helpful in that regard. Scripture teaches us God's will primarily in these two ways. By explicit statement. That's what the confession means when it says expressly set down. It's written right there on the page, right? What are we to believe about this? Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says it. That's enough. That defines truth on that issue, right? Or by good and necessary consequence from what is said, we deduce the will of God. And that's the point where a lot of people get tripped up. And so I want to spend the remaining time trying to develop these two ideas and why they're so important. Now let's first talk about some things are explicitly set down in Scripture. And that will be in one of two different ways. Either Scripture will just command something to be believed or to be obeyed. Or it will demonstrate something that we ought to believe or do uh, through the pattern of its teaching. And that pattern teaching is particularly prone to abuse. I want to say something about that just really quickly as an aside. Having grown up in the churches of Christ and having preached in the churches of Christ, the particular stream of the restoration movement in the churches of Christ that I grew up in and ministered in for many years is known for this type of patternism, as it is called. And what is done with that is examples from Scripture are collated and information is extracted from those examples and then rules are created based upon those examples. That is a very dangerous and I would argue in most cases unbiblical way of handling the Bible. And yet, I want to be careful here because I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are certain things that scripture does indeed, I believe, teach us by means of this consistent pattern that we see. Let me give you a, a couple of examples, okay? Have you noticed that there is no statement in the Old Testament where God forbids his people to practice polygamy? Now, there are certainly statements in the New Testament that you could understand that way. The qualifications for elders, for instance. 
And yet in missionary work in Africa, where polygamy is practiced as part of the culture, there is a real crisis there as to when a polygamist comes to faith, what do you do with this assortment of wives? Can he keep his wives? And, you, and, and some, some people's solution, I'm not suggesting this is the correct solution, but some Christian solution has been, well, as long as he's not going to be a church officer, there's nothing in the New Testament that would forbid this. Well, I think there are many ways of addressing that particular question. And I would begin in Genesis chapter 2 with the very foundation of marriage, right? But let's face the fact that when God creates male and female and joins them together as one flesh in the covenant of marriage, there's no explicit statement that says, now anything other than this is forbidden, which is how we've gotten now to the point in our society where we affirm same-sex marriage, unfortunately. Do you know what's interesting to find in the, the entire story of the Old Testament? Every time you see polygamy in the Old Testament, whether in the life of a believer or an unbeliever, you find problems. Always. I used to say this for years that it was, I think, almost without exception. I'll go as far now as to say, if there is an exception to this pattern, I have never found it. Every t- I have thought that polygamy would be a good idea, Right? I mean, what could be more convenient than you have a wife and then you have concubines to take care of the kids and do the laundry and fix the meals? And what woman wouldn't rejoice in that? Well, mine wouldn't, for instance. I don't think that I've ever met a woman that would rejoice in that. You know, what's fascinating is that even in a period of history and in a culture where polygamy was openly practiced by as as faithful men of God as Abraham. Right. Abraham, Jacob, David, Elkanah, there are problems all the time, all the time. And you cannot say, well, that's because those men were not believers. David is a man after God's own heart. (laughs) Moses is the father, excuse me, Abraham is the father of the faithful. How are you going to say those men are not believers? They are uber believers. And yet polygamy was a problem in their household. Now... When you look at that consistent pattern of Scripture, what is God trying to teach us? Now, this is, this is how I would encourage you to navigate these questions with regard to how do we understand the examples of Scripture? Well, first of all, be careful about extracting laws from single examples. Because what is described should not be understood as prescribed. Do you know the difference? When the Bible describes something, it's not necessarily prescribing that you and I should do the same. But there's a big difference between taking one example here or there and developing some prescription or some rule from that and saying, you know what? We see this exemplified over and over and over and over and over and over again in the Bible and we have explicit teaching that marriage is between one man And one woman, and what God has joined together, man is not to separate. And any alteration to that pattern is defined in Scripture, Old and New Testaments as adultery. You know what? I think polygamy is a bad thing. I think God is showing us that one man and one woman, not one man and multiple women, is His pattern for marriage. Now, could I get up here and say polygamy is contrary to the will of God? You better believe it. Absolutely. I would say that. I think I just did say that, right? How do I know that? I have deduced that from good as a good and necessary consequence of what the Bible teaches. Do you understand how how that works? Let me give you another example. 
In the New Testament, churches are always elder-led. Once churches are organized, right, with leaders, it's always elders. You find Paul, for instance, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, telling Titus, reminding Titus that this is why I left you at Crete, so that you could appoint elders in every church. Elders, plural, in every church, singular. Now, I will admit that grammatically you could make that go either way. You could say, well, what Paul is saying is that you should appoint elders in every church, and if you have an elder, just like if one man has one child, you would say, do you have children? And he would say, yes, I have a son or I have a daughter. Grammatically, you could make an argument that Paul's instruction to Titus does not require a plurality of elders in every congregation. But, guess what you see every time you see elders in the New Testament? And it's not once or twice. Over and over and over again, you see a plurality of elders in every single congregation. Now, I think it makes sense to most of us why that would be, right? Why you would have a plurality of qualified men to lead rather than just one man making all of the decisions. It's not, it, it's not really very Presbyterian at that point. It's not very elderish, elder-led at that point. It's more like a single bishop, right? And that's not the form of church government that you see contained in the Bible. So what do you have? In the New Testament, you have some seemingly pretty clear statements that suggest a plurality of elders is God's command, but they may not completely settle the, the issue. They may not completely seal the deal. But what you have is then a half a dozen references where every church that has elders in the New Testament has a plurality of elders. So at that point, can you draw as a good and necessary consequence of the Bible's teaching on this question to say, you know what, I think God wants a plurality of elders in the church. Not just one elder, but a plurality of elders in the church. That's his ideal. That's what we should be working toward. That's what we should be praying toward. That's what we should be uh, uh, hoping for. That's it. That's what you have. They call it necessary consequence because they are describing the inescapable outcome, the unavoidable conclusion. That's what, that's what they're talking about. It's not saying, well, it could be this, or it could be that, or perhaps this, or perhaps that. No, this is unavoidable. This is inescapable. Let me give you another example. You cannot be a Trinitarian unless you believe what we're talking about right now. You cannot be a Trinitarian, which means you cannot be a Christian Unless you believe that the Bible teaches both by explicit statement and necessary implications leading to inescapable conclusions. And why do I say that? Turn in your Bible to the verse that talks about the Trinity. Anybody got one? Now, you could throw out all kinds of... I mean, we've got all kinds of passages that teach what we believe about the doctrine of the Trinity. Does the word Trinity appear in any of them? No. Does a formal, complete definition of the Trinity appear in any of them? No, it doesn't. You've got one God verses, and you've got verses that describe the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and not as three uh, single, per or not as a single person, but as three distinct persons, right? The Father is God and is not the Son. The Son is God and not the Spirit. The Spirit is God. And not the Father, and yet there is only one God. 
(laughs) How do we reconcile that? The Trinity. There must be triunity. One God revealed in three distinct but indivisible, inseparable persons is triunity. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. And we believe that the necessary consequence of the Bible's teaching about the nature of the Godhead leads us to the doctrine of the Trinity. And so I want you to really pay attention to how important this little phrase is, this good and necessary consequence uh, of what the Bible says, to realize that it requires us to read the Bible thoughtfully. It assumes that the Bible must be interpreted and properly applied. Robert Latham again commenting on this said, quote, This is a profoundly important statement. It points to the need for careful thought in reading, preaching, and thinking about the Bible. It mandates theology. In order to begin to grasp the whole counsel of God, we need to be able to make legitimate deductions from the Bible, end quote. Otherwise, what is the point of listening to preaching? Otherwise, what is the point of talking about doctrine? We could just simply get up, read a chapter of the Bible, and say, you're dismissed. And maybe some of you wish that we did that. I don't know. I hope not, though. I hope you realize that we read the Bible, and then we have to wrestle with the Bible. And we have to say, okay, what does that mean? Well, now you're into drawing good and necessary conclusions from what the Bible says. So the will of God is not given to us just in a bulleted list of things that we are... Okay, so there you go. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. It's, uh, again, that was Pastor Joel Ellis from Reformation Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Um, I I could have just easily just put the whole sermon on here because he does he does a great job covering it but um but there are some other points in this section that i want to cover so here's the thing about scripture Uh, scripture is sufficient for teaching and doctrine right it is scripture is sufficient for teaching and doctrine therefore therefore we believe the, the the biblical teaching that we find in scripture that the inward illumination of the spirit of god is necessary question in other words we, we, we believe that it takes the inward illumination of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to have us really understand and believe what's in God's Word. Although anyone could read God's Word and understand it to an extent, right? But for us to truly believe and truly understand, we need the Spirit of God in us. We need the Spirit of God to work in our minds and our hearts so we can actually embrace that truth. And um, I'm going to go ahead and share this one passage in Scripture that where we, where we see this kind of teaching, okay? So 1 Corinthians chapter 2 Starting at verse 9, it says this, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, the spirit of but the spirit who is from god that we might understand the things freely given to us by god and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the spirit but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual the natural man the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of god for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned 
Okay, so that was 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 14. Clearly, God's word is spiritual, right? It's spiritual. It's, it was inspired by God, and the Holy Spirit inspired these men to write what we read. But verse 14 is pretty clear. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And, it's, and it, this explains why a lot of non-believers can't take the Bible seriously, right? They think it's foolish. And then once, once God saves them, suddenly it becomes the best book ever, right? And that's because the Spirit had regenerated them and, it, and the Spirit illuminated their mind to finally accept God's Word. So there must first be a work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life in order for them to, to, to truly accept God's revelation found in Scripture, especially things concerning the Gospel and who God is. So, And another point is that, that Scripture is sufficient for all that it was intended to do for the church, okay? So when it comes to teaching and all that, scripture is sufficient for all of it, right? But scripture is sufficient and it, and it actually makes room for tradition, okay? And I know some of us might might, might feel kind of weird about that, especially when, when I say tradition, right? But that last part in that section, right? Section uh, six, it, it, it lets us know. All right, just remember, not everything will be explicitly set down in scripture, okay? There, there are many things that can be deduced from scripture. Therefore, it's perfectly reasonable and more importantly, it's biblical to practice things that may not explicitly be commanded in Scripture, but they may be implied by it, okay? So, we can actually do things, right? We, we could practice things concerning the worship of God and, and, and even the government of the church when it comes to church polity. This is where the confession says that things that are, that are uh, concerning the worship of God and, gov and government of the church, common to human actions and societies, okay? So, it, it's taken into consideration that there are things that the church will do in worship and how it governs itself that may not exactly be commanded explicitly from scripture. One perfect example, guys, especially now, is the whole idea of church, okay, where there's a church building and then there's church membership, right? And there is a, uh, a board of pastors and, and everything is well organized. And we use it to worship God and to and to govern the church. But the Bible doesn't really lay it, lay it out for us like that. The Bible doesn't, the, the New Testament doesn't give us like a, like a rule book or instruction book on, on how to govern your church. There's examples and patterns that we can follow. It doesn't necessarily lay it down for us um, as much as we would want, okay? And, and it's really important. These things are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. In other words, tradition, and, uh, tradition that's not explicitly commanded in scripture can be accepted as long as, quote, the general rules of the word are observed. Meaning, as long as we are obeying scripture, okay, we're obeying scripture, it's okay. We should not worship in a way that can, that contradicts God's word. We shouldn't commit ourselves to practices and beliefs that go against God's word. All right, guys, I, I know that was a lot, and, uh, and unfortunately, I, I, I really wish I could spend more time on this, uh, but I can't this time. However, next week, I have a special guest, and, uh, and, and he will actually join me uh, on, on the podcast. In fact, we're actually going to do a, an hour-long video discussion, and and but we're, we're going to take we're going to take 30 minutes of that video and use it for the podcast for for part five, I believe. Yeah, part five of this series. So I really hope you guys enjoyed that. If you guys want to see the video, you guys can by going to the YouTube channel and and checking it out on there. Um, I'll post it right away. So all right, guys. Once again, please follow the the social media pages. Um, there's a lot of information on there. If you guys want to, if you guys want to support the uh, the radio station that, that I told you guys about earlier, uh, and that's going to be the that's going to be Redeemed Project Radio. If you guys want to support it, 
please check out the GoFundMe page in the description. And um, if you guys have any questions or you guys want to talk about this, uh, go on Facebook and type in the, ref uh, the roundtable, Christian Discussion and Debate, and we can talk about it on there. Or you can just shoot me an email, saintsedified at gmail.com, or look for me on Facebook. Okay, just type in my name and, and you'll, you'll see me there. That's uh, Arturo Hurtado. My last name is spelled H-U-R-T-A-D-O. Just go ahead and find me on there and I'll be more than happy to talk, all right? All right, guys, well, that's all I got for you this time. Until next time, Solidia Gloria.